Welcome to the Gifted Life Podcast, where we have conversations about organ, tissue, and eye donation and transplantation. You can always find us at thegiftedlife.org. I'm Lori Steele. I'm Joey Boudreaux. I'm Sarah Blakemore. Coming up on this episode... We are inviting a guest back from episode 104 to talk about advancements in reconstruction for breast cancer patients. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk about how awe and being in awe of your life can help with your death anxiety. We have lots to get to. Here we go. The Gifted Life. On this episode of The Gifted Life, exciting new developments. We invited some friends back. Uh, They joined us on episode 104 to tell us what they were working on. Um, And that was in 2019. So when we went back, we were like, oh, it's it's been a minute. Mm -hmm. Um, And they have been working steady and hard. And it's for the benefit of so many people. And so we invited them back. Yeah, Laurie, we have Nick Pashos here again with us, uh, the CEO of Bioaesthetics along with Billy Heim, uh, the chief operating officer. So uh, thank you guys for coming on again and, and uh, look forward to talking to you again. Yeah, thank you very much for having us. All right. So, um, Nick, we'll start with you. I remember on episode 104, you talked about watching Netflix and you had this marvelous idea that you were working on um, towards your, your PhD. You even changed kind of uh, a year and a half in. Uh, so tell us what that idea was um, and what you started. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, as I was telling you guys before, uh, you know, I previously was working on whole lung regeneration and ended up watching a Netflix documentary pretty late at night where they were talking about mastectomies and, uh, you know, potentially losing an, a nipple and areola during that process. Um, so I stayed up all night uh, reading about what a mastectomy actually was uh, and how currently the methods to reconstruct nipples are surgical reconstructions where they take skin from a different part of the body, such as a thigh, the arm, or even the breast tissue, and suture up a nipple-like structure. A lot of times these lose about 70% of its projection within a year, um, and within five years almost like completely flat against the patient's chest, uh, or they can have a tattoo which fades and has no depth to it. So, uh, you know, going through that process and just learning about it, um, you know, I thought we could take uh, the methods of what we're doing to try and regrow lungs outside the human body and transfer over the nipple and areola complexes. So that's that's what I did. I uh, walked into my uh, boss's office the next morning and said, hey, listen, I got this idea. I'd like to try to regrow the nipple and areola complex for women who have had mastectomies due to breast cancer. Uh, and that's, that's what we've been working on. Bill and I have been pushing forward with it ever since. Uh, we've been both working full-time in it since 2017. And it's a, you know, it's the human-derived nipple and areola complex product um, that is, that's used from uh, deceased donors. So tell us a little bit more about that, if you, if you don't mind, Nick. So, uh, so you, you know, you talk about it being a human-derived. So can you tell us about the process, you know, of what takes place from the, the actual recovery, you know, and, and also, you know, including the synthesizing part or, or the additional parts uh, decellularizing and, and you know, the structure. Absolutely. So in, in most cases for breast reconstruction, they currently use products known as allografts, which is essentially what our product is as well, or it's exactly what our product is. We are taking 
uh, human donor tissue and removing all the cells and DNA in a process known as decellularization, so, um, which means to remove cells from the tissue. What we're left with is a collagen-rich uh, scaffold in the exact same shape and size of that starting tissue. In this case, it's the nipple and areola complex. We've shown in a, in a preclinical large biological model that we can actually regrow uh, blood vessels and full thickness skin uh, when engrafted directly onto a, a dermal bed. Um, so we're ready to move forward to clinic with it. And Billy, so uh, last we talked to Nick, you know, I, I know you guys were uh, well on your way with uh, trials on mice, if I recall. Uh, and then, of course, you will look into more clinical trials later. So so how's that going? And uh, and can you tell us a little bit about, the, you know, the, the, the mice uh, research? Yeah, so I guess back in, um, yeah, last time we talked, uh, Nick had completed um, some of the research in mice uh, during his PhD work at Tulane. And then, you know, in 2017, when the company uh, became operational, um, that's when we actually moved it into a large animal, a non-human primate model. And so, you know, saw very nice results from that. Um, we, you know, with the different graphs, we saw that they actually healed within about six week time frame. Um, and that includes like essentially new skin forming uh, within uh, the graft. Um, you know, so the patient's own cells are, you know, in this case, the host, which is the, the animal, um, their own cells migrate into the scaffold um, that has been derived from you know, donated tissue um, and repopulate it and effectively create a new skin. A uh, new layer of skin, and then we also saw the creation of blood vessels. So it became a living uh, tissue that was integrated within the body. Um, and we also saw that, you know, from pictures and anecdotally, that, you know, we uh, saw that the nipple projection was maintained for that uh, six-week uh, period. Um, so those are all very exciting results. Not often are, um, you know, tissue decellularized tissues like these um, engrafted on the outside of the body. Um, so it was really unique um, to see how well uh, the tissue regenerated used in that fashion. Um, so like Nick said, these allografts are used um, within breast reconstruction, uh, but underneath the skin as a support for the implant. Um, and so, you know, we, you know, within the body, they're, um, they integrate fairly well. And, you know, it was, you know, it was kind of a, a new use to use externally. Um, so being able to see how that healed in the animal models, you know, allowed us and gave us the confidence to now, um, to bring it forward, uh, for human use, um, in, in patients that have had breast cancer. Um, so kind of where we are now is, you know, we've been working probably since the last time we talked, um, I think we've, we've been working on the manufacturing side of things. So making sure that we're producing a consistent product, um, following, quality assurance protocols and so that it'll be safe uh, for human use and you know meet the FDA regulations um, you know from our large animal studies as well we saw that this was a very safe product um, and so you know we expect it to be a very safe uh, in, in human use and so we're expecting as right now we're intending to move forward uh, with a clinical study um, with a, at a university uh, where we'll actually enroll 15 patients and follow them over the course of 12 months. And we'll be looking at uh, wound healing, so making sure the grafts are integrating uh, with the body, and then looking at 
the nipple projection and looking at patient satisfaction. And we'll also be following the potential for sensation. Um, so those are kind of kind of where we're going. Um, we also expect the product to be available, um, you know, for use outside of the clinical study later this year. Um, so it's been, you know, exciting to see the transformation uh, moving from, you know, really the research phase and now into, you know, the product launch, if you will. Um, and, you know, working with great partners and on the recovery agency side like Lupa um, to make this happen has been you know, fantastic. So guys, in, in, you know, of course, with organ transplants, uh, the, the, the organ recipients are uh, usually on, in most almost all occasions have to uh, take medicines, immunosuppressants and things for uh, anti-rejection. Make sure they don't look at the organ as a for, foreign body and then uh, attack it, so to speak. So because this is decellularized, uh, scaffolding, so to speak, does, does that mean that uh, they, they won't, the, the 15 patients will not need to use uh, immunosuppressants or is, is, are they still going to need immunosuppressants with it? Yeah, that's correct. So uh, patients will not need immunosuppressants. Um, so because we don't have, um, you know, any cells or, or very little to no DNA left over um, from the donor, uh, the recipient's body actually sees it as essentially just human protein, as human collagen, as human elastin, and it uses that as a scaffold to uh, allow for the patient's own cells to grow into it and reestablish a blood, blood supply and full thickness skin. Uh, so it just becomes part of the body. It, it's not seen as a, a foreign entity. And these types of products that are derived from uh, humans have been on the market for probably about 30 years with very nice safety profiles uh, and very low, low risk rejection. And as Billy said, our preclinical models have all been really wonderful, both from a safety and efficacy standpoint. Uh, so we feel very comfortable moving forward uh, and we're, we're excited to start uh, offering this to patients. What's the time frame that uh, you, you guys from, I guess, you know, from the donor side to what you project uh, for, for the recipients? What's the time frame uh, that, that you'll be able to locate someone, you know, you'll, I guess the processing and then location of, of the right uh, potential recipient? Yeah, uh, that's kind of a, you know, an interesting question on, on, on you know, how, how, does a, how does it find its way to the recipient? And what we're actually doing is, um, you know, from speaking with, with breast cancer survivors and patients who have undergone breast reconstruction and also from surgeons, we understand that patients actually have a preference on the size of nipple and areolas that they would like during their reconstruction. Um, so that's basically how we've been able to offer the product to them is based off of size preference. Um, so, you know, if somebody would like a, a smaller one or a larger one, we're able to match that preference. Um, so from the time it's a donor, uh, from a, a donor to a recipient, you're probably looking, you know, about or four weeks or so uh, before it can be engrafted uh, by the time, you know, all, all quality checks are through and processing is all set. Uh, and then it's purely just, uh, based off of size preference from there. Wow, that's pretty impressive, especially for the patients. I'm sure it's going to change their lives. From a donor family perspective, um, I actually approach families for donation and have been approaching for um, nipple areola research. And every family that has agreed and consented to this is very excited. 
Um, most people in this country know someone who is affected by breast cancer. So it's very meaningful. It's a very powerful decision. So um, I just wanted to let you all know that from our side, it has been very well received and very well um, excited. The families are excited to be a part of that process. Oh, th- you know, thank you very much for that feedback. You know, as Bill and I have been pushing forward with this, uh, you know, as a company since 2017 together, it's it's been really important to get, you know, the, the donor family's feedback as well as the organ procurement agencies and, and tissue procurement um, because it, that's an absolutely essential part. Without donors, none of these types of products would ever happen. Um, so it's important to keep them in the loop and also to receive their feedback uh, so that we can, you know, offer that gift to, you know, the patients that need it. One of the things that I remember from our last conversation was um, the potential to possibly store a patient's own nipples before mastectomy. Um, is that something uh, that is able to happen or where are we on that? Yes, um, that's something we are still looking uh, pursuing. Um, so we would expect it to be from someone that is undergoing a prophylactic mastectomy and has not had any um, expression of, of cancer yet. Um, so it would be gene positive. So they test BRCA you know, positive or something like Angelina Jolie, and then they elect to undergo a prophylactic mastectomy. Um, at this point, that's what we feel comfortable with, not with a patient who has had some expression of cancer because you know, the duct to the nipple is many ducts and depending you know, where the margins are, um, we just want to make sure things remain safe for the patient at this time until you know, further research is conducted on how um, how the expression of cancers or tumors might, you know, affect uh, the tissue and, you know, something potential in the future. Um, so as of right now, you know, all, all the donors that we are um, accepting are, you know, they have, they have not had breast cancer um, or any skin diseases of the breast. Um, and so then, you know, we make sure that the, the tissue is absolutely safe for any recipient down the road. But, um, like I said, for those prophylactic mastectomies, um, we would definitely uh, be open to uh, re- recovering their uh, nipples prophylactically and then processing them and giving them back uh, at a later time. But uh, we haven't had that happen yet. So, but uh, we're open to it, and hopefully uh, that'll you know increase in the future. You mentioned uh, the um, areola ducts and course now having a new baby it made me think about it so from a functionality standpoint is is there going to be a function uh, you know with with you know possible use of a baby you know with the the areolas or or is it purely cosmetic yeah so you know I, it's a it's actually a pretty complicated question but you know when billy and i were really looking at it and uh, seeing the main population of uh, individuals that would benefit from this type of reconstructive surgery, which would be breast cancer um, survivors who have undergone mastectomies. In most cases, uh, you know, they, they, those breast cancer survivors may not have the um, ability to kind of produce milk moving forward for baby, especially if most of the breast tissue is removed. Um, So from the standpoint of a breast reconstruction, um, you know, we're not, we're not also reconstructing the luciferous ducts or, you know, the sort of the glands that produce the milk. We're purely um, regenerating the bone areolal complex. So it has an absolutely massive, um, you know, uh, 
self-esteem or other psychological benefits for the patient as well as an aesthetic benefit uh, just at this time that's really the uh, main population that would be helped uh, so you know the likely milk uh, or breastfeeding uh, for a baby in the future would would not be something that this product would be helpful for currently that's that's a good point i didn't even when I, as i'm saying it i didn't think about it's true you know most of the breast tissue is going to be removed so it wouldn't be possible anyway in most situations so but you're right you know the whole the self-image part you know uh and of course you know i don't speak to families anymore but I, i'm still uh part of the family support group and you know one of the things that they you know can connect with is that self-image for those you know, for their, the, the, their loved ones that have had breast cancer and, and those uh, image issues that come with, with the mastectomies, to be able to provide that is, is such an amazing thing. You guys talked about, you know, you're working on, you know, the, the sensation. I talked about functionality, but so, so the sensation, obviously you can't figure that, that out with, with the animals, but uh, are, are you somewhat expecting that to, to be uh, one of the positives coming out? Or, uh, you know, how, how high of, of a confidence level, I guess, uh, do you guys have right now on, on being able to return that sensation? <laughs> these questions today, they're, they're uh, <laughs> these are great questions. They're very challenging. <laughs> uh, Billy, do you want to answer this? <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, so, I mean, in terms of, you know, what we saw in the, the large animal model, and this was going on to healthy tissue, um, you know, was that, we actually in 75% of the graphs we saw within six weeks, uh, we, you know, observed nerves. Um, so they were present, but whether or not that actually implied or, you know, effectuated sensation, we don't know because you know, they're obviously the animals and we don't know. Um, but, you know, from the human perspective, you know, what we, our expectation is that it's going to be very patient dependent um, and it's going to be highly dependent upon how the mastectomy was done and then how the breast reconstruction was done. So, you know, if, if it's not, if the mastectomy takes all the breast tissue, most often patients that have that done and then have a tissue expander for reconstruction have no feeling in their breasts at all. Um, if they're left with a, a skin sparing mastectomy, then there's a possibility that they actually have sensation in the breast on the skin of the breast envelope um, and those you know those nerves could potentially migrate into the graft um, you know if they're undergo total radical mastectomy and then have an autologous reconstruction rather than a tissue expander and an implant where they actually take uh, large skin flaps from the abdomen or the back um, and and reconstruct breasts out of that tissue um, you know, those would be likely highly, you know, have quite a bit of innervation. Um, and so then we could potentially think, you know, those nerves would also make it into the nipple at some point. Um, you know, timing of that, we don't know, um, you know, until, you know, we're in, in patients and, you know, get some of that feedback. Um, you know, otherwise, we do know that there are some groups, um, one company in particular called Oxygen, that is working on as a decellularized nerve product, um, allograft nerve product, and they have some studies ongoing uh, for reinnervating uh, the breast tissue um, for mastectomy patients as well. So there's some of that work ongoing, um, and so you know that could be 
uh, you know, it's kind of potential in the future. Um, and, you know, kind of we'll have to see where, where the research takes us. So, um, but what we can, what we can say is that from our large animal work, uh, the graft does not inhibit nerve growth. It actually supports it. And then the question is going to be whether or not there are nerves, uh, there or in the area, uh, to then migrate into it. And then, you know, functionality for sensation, uh, we're unclear, um, you know, what that means down the road, but it's possible. So I know when we talk about breast cancer a lot, we think about uh, women. Are there any men who are in your trial who um, are expecting graphs? Yeah. Uh, so we actually also work with a male breast cancer group, uh, the Male Breast Cancer Coalition, um, which is based in uh, um, Kansas City. Um, and, you know, there aren't too many men that undergo uh, or have breast cancer each year. You know, it's probably about mm-hmm. 26 or 2,800 each year, uh, and most of them will undergo, uh, you know, a mastectomy, and a lot of times that is also removing the nipple and areola complex. So that's something that we have been uh, discussing with our group, getting feedback from. You know, it's a it's a really, really important. It's a much smaller population than female breast cancer survivors. Our study is open uh, to anyone who is undergoing a reconstruction. There are some inclusion and exclusion criteria, of course, through that study. Um, but, you know, and Billy and I do not know the individuals who are going to, mm-hmm. um, that will be included in the study. So uh, as of right now, uh, I don't believe so, uh, but it's not to say that wouldn't be a potential. Uh, and certainly, uh, you know, you know, when it comes to uh, deceased donors, uh, you know, we are open to both female mm-hmm. and male. Uh, because a lot of times, you know, again, going back to size preference, it, 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 it really is, um, it doesn't discriminate based off of sex. Uh, uh, so, you know, it's definitely something that we could utilize and, um, you know, offer to male breast cancer survivors as well. So fascinating. We actually uh, talked about this with our volunteers here at LOPA. So many questions, so many possibilities, so much hope uh, that you guys are providing. So we appreciate you. And I just think we're going to need to have them back on Mm -hmm. uh, the podcast. So, (laughs) guys, you have a standing appointment whenever you're ready to come back. Um, But we know that our our listeners will have questions. They want to go and and, um, see what you guys are doing. Um, Where can we send them? Where do you want them looking, um, you know, online, Facebook, those types of things? Yeah, so we have a presence on LinkedIn, we have a presence on Facebook, uh, and then our website, which is, uh, we just had it recently redone actually, is bio-aesthetics.com. Uh, and please feel free to go on there. We have uh, you know, a, a, a little link that you can send us a message directly uh, with an email address online as well. Uh, you know, we love to hear from um, you know, donor families as well as uh, breast cancer survivors and caregivers um, you know, for their feedback in general. You know, we couldn't do this without, um, you know, the deceased donors, loved ones uh, pushing forward with it uh, and offering this for our recipients. So we're in incredibly thankful to everyone who's involved and for you guys as well. Thank you so much for having us on today. We appreciate the both of you, Nick and Billy. Keep up the good work and we hope to hear um, from you again here on The Gifted Life. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Here on the Gifted Life podcast, it's time for mental health, and we're taking a moment. Yeah, Sarah, this was a very interesting one, coping with death anxiety. Oh, 
I'm interested to hear what you have to say. I'm nervous. Okay. <laughs> Don't be nervous. Okay. So, um, essentially, people who experience death anxiety, a lot, it could be anyone, but a lot of times it's people who either experience a traumatic death, which could be categorized as um, a death when you're young, sudden death, um, and your family, friends, something that really disrupted your world. Mm-hmm. Um, or a lot of times people who work in death, so a lot of hospice workers. Uh, people who work in organ donation, we see a lot of sudden traumatic death, which could give us death anxiety. So just so I can understand, mm-hmm. so death anxiety would be your own death anxiety about your own death? Your own what? death or your family and friends. Okay. Essentially, it's feeling so anxious and fearful of death that it disrupts your day-to-day life. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times we see this with healthcare workers, um, especially when, you know, with if they have kids, they're very afraid of what could happen, of deaths that they could experience because they've seen it daily. Mm-hmm. So it's very natural. It's very normal to feel afraid of death, but we don't want it to disrupt your life. Right. So how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, I get nervous if like there's a, a funeral coming, like, am I going to say the wrong thing? Um, right. How long do you stay? Uh, where do you stand? Like those things go through my mind just mm-hmm. like as there's an event happening. Right. And, you know, I think the one thing that I want to talk about today, which really can help you cope with death anxiety is awe. So what I mean by that is being in awe of your life, of life in general. How do we do that? We just simply live in gratitude. We recognize that while death, the reality of death is very scary and it is something that we all will have to deal with, there's still so much to live for. Um, So recognizing the awe of life and pursuing your purpose, your passions, um, making the most of your time with family and friends can really help reduce the anxiety of death. Live. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, in, in, in my life, I don't really experience that death anxiety too much for myself. Mm-hmm. But, I, you know, even just driving here today now with a new baby, my wife right. has it constantly right. with baby Blakely. It's, right. All right. Make sure you don't talk and text on the phone <laughs> and don't you know, oh, obey yeah. all traffic laws. Right. And, <laughs> like, babe, I got it. Right. But she has a, it's a constant. It is, is it a real anxiety for her right now. Mm-hmm. Just bringing you know, the, the baby to my mom's house, for instance. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, the baby's on the road, so. Right. I get your wife. I yeah. totally get it. I'm there. Yeah. Yeah. And I've heard a lot of my coworkers um, have this discussion because we're around death so much that um, a lot of people can think it's going to happen every day. Mm-hmm. And so really, I'm not saying ignore that because denial doesn't work, especially with anxiety and death, but... Also remember to be in awe of your life, in awe of the gifts you have, the family you have. And when you are afraid of death, remember to also be in awe of life. And it'll help reduce that anxiety. Enjoy where you are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I like that. You have a topic you want Sarah to cover? Just email us, info at thegiftedlife.org. Laurie, in our question and answer segment, Uh-oh. <laughs> today's question is for you, okay. since I'm the organ guy, as some people call me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so how can so many people benefit from one person's gift of tissue? 
What is recovery? Oh, I love this question. And then when we're doing presentations, I love to have these conversations because someone somewhere is connected in some way, shape, or form, which is amazing. Um, but Lopa recovers tissues uh, for donation, and more than 50 people can be, can be healed by these donations, which is pretty incredible. You want to list, Sarah? Yeah. So the right now, this is currently what we recover. These are the gifts of tissue. Um, we recover eyes, heart for pericardium, bone, vessels, skin, and bone marrow and vertebral bodies. And that doesn't count all the countless gifts from research like we talked about mm-hmm. earlier today in our podcast. And, um, you know, these are life enhancing and also life saving. Yeah. And we work with a, a donor family. I just loved how she put this. Um, her son uh, was a hero, a donor, um, and donated his corneas. And so she said, I, I haven't met, I don't know. But she said, whoever received his eyes, uh, they will see a more beautiful world. Mm-hmm. And that just gave me comfort, gave her comfort. I just love the way that she phrased that. And that was her view um, of cornea donation. I just thought that was beautiful. So um, those are the things that that we can do. If you want more, we have a resource page at lopa.org. We'd love for you to check it out. And we could talk about it all day if you let us on, Joe. (laughs) Yes, we will. And if you guys have a question, please give us a call. That number is 504-648-3477. That's 504-648-3477. In every episode of The Gifted Life, we honor a hero. Today's hero is Chelsea Carrier. And we learn about Chelsea from her family. Chelsea will always be our angel at Christmas and every day. It was her life mission to help others, always. She truly made this world a better place. She gave specific instructions that she wanted to be a donor when she passed. We are so honored to continue her legacy and honor all of her wishes as we know her recipients are seeing the world through her angel eyes. So now we pause and say thank you to Chelsea for the gift of life. And that's going to do it for episode 156 of The Gifted Life. Yeah. Thank you to Billy and Nick for coming on and sharing those advancements in the nipple uh, areola complex, their research that they're doing. It's fantastic research, obviously very necessary. And we're so happy at LOPA to be just a part of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love to hear from them and hopefully uh, they'll join us here again on The Gifted Life. Um, Maybe you're listening and you haven't yet taken that step to register as an organ, tissue, and eye donor. You can do that anytime. Hopefully uh, you've been inspired. Registerme.org. And the best place to find us, guys, thegiftedlife.org. You can listen there or anywhere you like to listen to your podcasts, whether it's iHeartRadio, Google, Apple, or Spotify. If you do listen on Apple, please leave us a five-star rating and a review and subscribe so others can find our podcast. On social, you can find us on Facebook, The Gifted Life Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Gifted Life Pod. Thanks for listening. Help us spread the word. Our goal is to learn and to make life happen. And our ask is that you go out and do something you wouldn't normally do to help us make life happen. We're one big team. Until next time. (laughs) 
This is a production of LOPA, or the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency. The Gifted Life is hosted by Lori Steele, Joey Boudreaux, and Sarah Blakemore. Our executive producer is Kirsten Hines. Producer is Shalon Carraway. Intern is Rebecca Ranham. And we are recorded, engineered, and mixed in our Covington, Louisiana studio by Troy Perez. <laughs>